Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Piancy, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in crime, Mr. Bennett Tomlin. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, Cass. How are you? I'm doing well. We are joined by a special guest today, Mario Gibney, who works at, I don't know how to pronounce it, Leden or Lend? is What's the right way here? Leden. You got Ledin. it. Leden. Okay. A, uh, a Bitcoin lending platform and stablecoin lending platform and... Uh, and savings account platform, I guess I'll say. And he used to work for Blockstream, which is probably going to displease some of our guests that we're having a former Blockstream employee on. But uh, I'm glad. I'm glad that we are. People don't like Blockstream here? <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, did, I'll play that role. Did you miss that, Mario? <laughs> did I? Um, well, to be honest, I, I, like, I've listened. The, the shows of your guys I listen to have mainly been like taken down, like, you know, Luna and Tether and something more egregious scams. So I actually... I actually haven't listened to you guys comment on Blockstream before, so this should be fun. We don't really comment on Blockstream. What I'm talking about is that we have, uh, we definitely have some Bitcoin Cash fans out there who listen to us. Oh, what's up, guys? <laughs> they might know me. Um, I also, I, I was do, just gonna say, the last time ahead. I came on a podcast <laughs> and was uh, was unexpectedly uh, defending Blockstream, they were really big fans of Nano, and uh, I kind of spent the rest of the episode trying to explain why I didn't like Nano. Um, but I feel reassured that hopefully I won't have to do that this time. I, I promise not to shield Nano. <laughs> yeah, same. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're also the co-host of the Unhashed podcast. I wanted to also get that in there to make sure that we um, we shield all your products uh, while, while we have the opportunity. But Yeah, I would have shielded myself had you not done that. So thank you. It's even better <laughs> when you guys mention it. I, I was wondering if you'd notice because often the people who know me for Blockstream don't know about the podcast and... Kind of vice versa. Cool. <laughs> well, it's it's a pleasure to have you on, um, and and yeah, I'm looking forward to to talking about a, a, a lot of this. Um, I guess it'd be it'd be nice to give the guests an opportunity. Is there something you would like to first talk about primarily? Oh, um, no. Let's just see where the conversation goes. I like. Mm. I'm really curious about this because, like, usually when I go on uh, go on shows, it's like people from the Bitcoin world who are excited to hear about from another maxi like me and um usually it's like i can kind of assume that we kind of have similar i don't know bullish sentiments on bitcoin and why it's good for the world and then i'm often just kind of talking about you know uh when i was at blockstream about like how products fit into that now that i'm at leaden you know it fits in there so i'm actually just really curious where you guys want to go with things well that i think that actually is a perfect uh, a perfect segue because i guess the the bitcoin ecosystem in general is kind of I would suggest against lending. Most lending uh, is against kind of uh, giving your Bitcoin up, your, right? Uh, not your keys, not your coin. So I'm wondering how you found yourself going from Blockstream, which seems like a, overall a pretty Bitcoin maximalist prone company, to something that's so different from mm. that in Ledin. Yeah, I got a, a lot of people were surprised when I made the move. Um, and yeah, I, I guess like from my perspective, I don't think that there's any necessary contradiction there. For me, like not your keys, not your coins is a really good heuristic, especially given the first 10 years, the absolute Wild West nature of the Bitcoin ecosystem. You know, you just you had the empty goxes, you had the quadrigas, uh, you had all this stuff going on that strongly encouraging people not to put their coins on, you know, any platform was a really good idea. And I remember thinking back about like... Um, I think it was around 2018 when I was thinking like, you know, there's there's probably a bunch of really valid use cases um, for Bitcoin and, you know, some some kind of ways to use it that will depend on a custodial model that are probably being underutilized. Because I think a lot of the people who really understood the Bitcoin ecosystem or like really understood the kind of the, the value prop of Bitcoin uh, moved away from that kind of thing and, and wanted to build kind of, you know, self-sovereign tools, etc., 
But I was kind of on my, on keeping my eye out for uh, companies and individuals who were kind of like, you know what, we're going to provide a custodial service um, because, you know, it's the only way we can do like X, um, you know, provide this type of service. And I actually, I, I found out about BlockFi before Ledin, um and I thought, okay, well, this is like one use case that uh, it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, you, you can't really do non-custodial lending. It doesn't make sense. The entire purpose of lending, uh, lending coins out kind of requires you to give that up. And uh, I ended up meeting the, the co-founders of Ledin uh, in Toronto and, uh, and hit it off with them pretty quickly. And I, I, I really jived with them because we kind of had similar uh, Bitcoin-focused leanings. Like we weren't kind of the toxic maximalist people who were kind of make it our whole lifestyle and, you know, attack people on social media. But um, we're a bit more on the pragmatic end of things. And so our values aligned a lot. And I, I, I was an early uh, client of Ledin and kind of uh, used the service for a while, thought it was good. And especially the thing that really made me kind of think, okay, these guys get it um, before I joined the team was um, the uh, uh, proof of reserves where twice a year, what we'll do is open up our books. I love that this is just a lead ad already. Uh, like twice a year, twice a year <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll open our books up to uh, Armadino LLP to, to basically give an attestation. And I'm really interested in this side of things. I, I don't think that um, long-term Bitcoin can ever reach mainstream adoption, have everyone hold their own coins. I don't think that's realistic. I think it's a really good thing to push for early on. And as the, the industry matures, I think it's really important people can still do that if they want to. Um, but also that we kind of get used to supporting and building companies that uh, can be more responsible when taking possession of other people's uh, coins. So that was that was a mentality I had um, when I kind of uh, shifted uh, shifted companies. Related to that, uh, in February of 2019, you tweeted at one point, 78 Quadriga CX clients owed over $11 million. That's nearly $150,000 per client on average. Why on earth are people leaving such staggering amounts of money on an exchange? My inner Andreas mm. is dying here. Not your keys, not your coins, people. Come on. So would you say yeah. since that time your views have evolved and you think people can safely store more than $150,000, for example, on an exchange or on a lending platform? Um, yeah, I guess they would. This is hilarious. I've never actually had someone uh, dig up a tweet of mine and ask me to comment on it. Um, my, so my views have definitely evolved since then. I, I think, um, I yeah, mainly because the... Um, I guess like the way I phrased it there was kind of like there is no custodian or there is no platform on which you should feel comfortable leaving the coins on. And yeah, I guess I, I, I don't hold that view as strongly anymore. And yeah, partly because um, I think that the space has evolved and that the kind of quality of platforms has improved a lot. Um, and I think there's I think there's a lot of evidence to, to bear that out. Like there are still a lot of Mickey Mouse operations going on out there. But the percentage of kind of asset value that is like, um, oh, how do I phrase this? Like, you know, like when NTGOX happened, like that was like a massive percentage of the total value of all kind of Bitcoin cryptocurrency in circulation. And then like, you know, in 2017, there was like a lot of hacks and kind of over time, the percentage of the economy out there affected by those is going down. I think part of the reason for that is that the industry is maturing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have an interesting counter argument to that, which would be that while we've seen perhaps a better operational security from centralized exchanges, at least in the past, maybe, let's say, year or two, I don't know, I don't want to give too much credit there. But I think a lot of that risk now, as we saw this past week with Terra and Luna, is being passed on to things like stable coins and the environments that those stable coins end up building, which are oftentimes lending platforms that can offer and do offer numbers that are unsustainable. So for instance, we have seen a kind of intense decrease in the price of Celsius Network's token, and we have seen them struggling after this Terra Luna fiasco. 
what is it that differentiates your platform from that? Why do you feel more safe than these other ones? And I know that you guys no longer allow U.S. residents to use your platform, but we saw that BlockFi and uh, and Nexo and Celsius have all kind of been targeted by U.S. regulators in the in the past. Mm. Don't you think that's a concern that that you guys should have as well, or? Sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a few different things there. Um, first, I'd say that like actually some of our products are still available to Americans. Um, but uh, yeah, the kind of most uh, uh, kind of prominent uh, product like that us and other lenders have are savings accounts, which you're right, have been discontinued uh, for Americans. I, I think that it's important to distinguish between the types of risk that come from custodial mismanagement and operation security and more uh, systemic risks that come from the actual construction of these assets, right? Like the the risks that we have seen kind of blow up with, um, you know, with Luna and UST, that's a different type of risk than the um, than what happened with Quadriga, for example. Um, you know, with UST, there was, uh, you know, it, it was a Ponzi scheme, right? Like the, the way that Luna was structured. Um, whereas Quadriga was like, there is a way to properly uh, manage and run a platform and like responsibly, you know, use clients' funds. It was just that, that Quadriga wasn't doing that, right? And again, that, that's where stuff like, um, you know, like, sorry to repeat myself, but like, I think stuff like proof of reserves just makes the risk of that much, much lower. Um, I, I think I've answered your question. Like, I think I responded to that. I, let me know if I missed one of the, the points you had, though. No, I mean, I think for the most part um, that accounts for it. However, I don't think that the proof of reserves would inherently mitigate regulatory risks that other lenders have had to face. Oh, uh, yeah, regulatory in- risks. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I didn't comment on that. That, that. That's fair. I um Again, though, regulatory risks are, like, they're a legitimate thing to, like, keep an eye out for. And again, the industry is still maturing. And then hopefully, as time goes on, there will become better regulatory clarity on this stuff. And then, you know, the amount of kind of uncertainty and change in products over time that will slow down. But yeah, I uh, maybe maybe I'm, I'm stuck comparing this to like, are, are we still uh, are we still comparing this to kind of how my views have changed on custodial risk? Um, because to be honest, actually, like reg- regulatory risk is not something I actually thought about a whole lot until um, uh, for the last couple of years. Um, uh, before, I was just like curious how kind of these products worked uh, like at a technical level, right? Sure, but I think that there's clearly, um, just based on the fact that so many state regulators have gone after mm. both BlockFi and Bennett, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's BlockFi and Nexo. Is that who they're going after mostly? Was it Celsius too? All three of the big ones have been targeted by different state regulators. Mm. And I believe that was a combination of allowing U.S. residents to use the platform, despite promising that that was not the case. And I think that it was also, in some cases, just offering it to U.S. residents as well. So those are a couple regulatory risks. I don't know if we've seen the, Bennett, have we seen the Ontario, like, have we seen the Ontario Securities Exchange Commission, whatever it's called, going after any of these or no? I don't know the OSC stance on lending. Okay. On lending so, addresses. I, I don't know it off the top of my head. So I guess I just see it as like an actual real concern for lending platforms mm. a lot more than something like Bitcoin, which obviously what exactly would the SEC do about Bitcoin? They can't do anything. So, um, uh, you know, it, it seems like a real risk that people should take into account if they're going to be using any of these platforms at all. No? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, it's good to know what you know, your jurisdiction has to say on these topics and understand that this is a volatile field. Um, like from our stance, like we have um, uh, been very fortunate to not have to deal with uh, a lot of the legal difficulties of our competitors. And I don't think that's uh, 
I don't think that's by chance. Uh, we've been a lot more conservative in our product offerings, um, in the way we've marketed ourselves. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I don't have direct insight into, you know, Celsius, BlockFi, Nexo's um, a breakdown, but um, the impression I get um, is that we are uh, more distributed. Like we have clients in 127 different countries. One of our co-founders is Venezuelan and a large portion of our team are from Latin America. And so we have a lot of clients in uh, Mexico, Colombia, uh, Venezuela. And actually being in Canada um, does have its advantages in that, yeah, the regulatory environment here has been more stable. Um, so, you know, for those reasons, we, we have been able to weather this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I would say uh, w- without uh, too much difficulty. Uh, but yeah, like, and again, I'm not trying to suggest that there is no risk. There absolutely is risk there. And it's, you know, an important thing if someone's considering using one of these platforms to um, keep an eye out for that. So I have a couple of related questions here, and they largely are about where the yield comes from for people who are using the Bitcoin savings account. On the list hmm. of risks listed on the Ledin website, it says, we may hold your digital assets in our name or in any other name, and we may pledge, repledge, hypothecate, rehypothecate, sell, lend, or otherwise transfer or use any amount of such crypto assets separately or together with other property, with all attendant rights of ownership and for any period of time and without retaining a like amount of crypto asset, and use or invest such digital assets. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what the Bitcoins are being used for when they're placed in the Bitcoin savings account and lent out? And then related to that, why for the Bitcoin savings account does the yield drop from 5.25% to 2% as soon as someone deposits more than 0.1 Bitcoin or about $3,000 as of recording? Yeah, sure. Um, The majority of our coins are lent out through uh, Genesis Capital. Uh, For those who aren't familiar, Genesis Capital is the um, uh, largest institutional lender in the cryptocurrency industry. Um, they are uh, very well capitalized. Uh, they're highly transparent. Um, they release quarterly reports. Um, we've been working with them for several years now. And um, up until quite recently, all of the yield generated on our uh, BTC uh, deposits were lent out through Genesis. Um, you know, they pay interest on, on that. We pass that on to clients. Um, we are starting to uh, deploy the capital directly ourselves. Um, uh, again, we do this like through quite... Um, conservative methods. Um, we don't put our client funds into DeFi, for example. You know, we're not like trying to time the market and do stuff like that. We, we use very, very conservative strategies there. Um, yeah, most of it through Genesis Capital, some of it deployed directly ourselves. So the, um, so what was the other question? You had asked me uh, where, where most of the yield comes from and... And then why does it drop off from five and a quarter percent to two percent as soon as you get past that uh, tenth of a Bitcoin mark. Right. Well, the two percent is much closer to what the actual rate is we can make on it. The um, the higher yield for kind of the initial deposit is uh, um, uh, we uh, we subsidize that. It's it's a way to track people to the platform and um, yeah, and just get them comfortable with us essentially. And uh, and then it yeah, if people are uh, are uh, attracted to the platform, they're more likely to kind of use us for a loan if they um, happen to need it in the future. Um, so that's it. It's quite simple. Um, like, and I guess we, we faced a choice in between, like we could have had a, like a higher threshold and, uh, and kind of a lower first tier interest rate. Um, but one of the things we actually try to do is, um, is I, I mean, maybe democratize isn't the right word, but we, we try to spread the benefits of our product to be available more for people who just have smaller stacks. Um, you know, we have much lower limits on our loans because as I said before, a lot of our clientele are in places like Mexico, Colombia. Uh, places where they kind of rely more heavily on the credit we offer. And, you know, if, if some of these platforms have like a $5,000 minimum for loans, 
you know, some people really need to have lower limits than that. It's a similar kind of, you know, approach we take here. We would rather give a higher interest rate to a greater number of our clients, even if they have smaller stacks, than to have uh, kind of the, the wealthier ones uh, take the lion's share at that extra rate. Well, so on the flip side of that, the USDC rates are, well, significantly higher. Uh, the the mm-hmm. rates that you guys give to people for, for USDC currently are, are 7.5%. Um, is that also through Genesis Capital? Uh, actually, a lot of that comes from just financing our loans. So the uh, like uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, our, our original product is the you know Bitcoin backed loan. Uh, people deposit, uh, you know, if you want to borrow a thousand dollars from us, you can deposit two thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. We issue a loan worth one thousand uh, dollars. When you pay back the loan, the collateral is released back to your control, and uh, so we finance a lot of these loans with um, other clients' uh, USDC deposits. Uh, some of it is also lent out through Genesis. Yeah. Okay, but you're you're saying that the majority of that yield is from lending that out to your own customers, and then uh, handing it back off to your other customers. Is that that about right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I believe that's the majority. At least it was last I heard several months ago. Um, so it might have like hovered around. Like it might have. There might be like slightly more of it lent out through Genesis. I don't remember off the top of my head, but um, yeah, that's basically it. Okay, so so my second question. Sorry, sorry. Just my second question, really quick here. When you say when you say this this interest yield is via Genesis, that that means you're handing it off to Genesis, and like kind of no questions asked. You guys are receiving this yield in return, um, and I'm just wondering, like, do we have any idea where those yields are coming from? Do we know how Genesis Capital is promising? To give you, obviously, I would hope a little bit more than what you're offering your customers, and then you give your customers whatever you can from that, right? Hmm. Uh, are you asking uh, specifically about the BTC or USDC, or both just generally? I, I guess both. Any any funds okay. that you're giving to Genesis that they could promise these yields on? I guess I'm wondering. So you're yeah. you're saying like, well, that's how we get the yields is through Genesis, and I'm saying, well, what is what exactly? Sure, sure. Does you want me to go mean? one step further? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. So I mean, Gen- Genesis will lend out through um, to a, you know a variety of other institutions that effectively have um, you know I guess trading strategies where they want to. Uh, where it might require them to um, hold these assets, but they want, um, for Bitcoin, perhaps they don't want exposure to Bitcoin price volatility, but perhaps they realize there's, um, uh, you know, money to be made in, you know, the basis trade if they see that, you know, Bitcoin futures are kind of longer than spot Bitcoin, uh, you know, there, there's, you know, an opportunity there and that there might be demand for them to borrow Bitcoin. Um, that's just one example. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm not actually sure um, where most of the yield comes from, from the USDC um, on the Genesis side of things, but I believe that the because I know that the the, the rate there is largely determined by um, uh, what we can charge clients for um, for the Bitcoin backed loans, which makes sense. The rate you charge is seven point nine percent plus the two percent administration fee. The rate paying out is seven point five. There's the point four between those two for the profit. So that, so that fits. That that makes sense to me. Um, did I win? No more questions. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, uh, I did. Uh, it. Thanks, guys. Yes. Um. <laughs> You've answered them all. We've got nothing left. All right. um, no, the product I'm curious about. I'm just trying to figure out the mm. right way to ask about it because it He's... is the uh, send one Bitcoin, get two Bitcoins back product. The B2X, B2X product, loans. Yeah. Which is effectively, as far as I can understand it, briefly, basically a one to one collateralized loan until the second Bitcoin is purchased and then like a mm. 50% loan to value loan. You got it. 
yeah, under the roughly normal terms for the other lending that you do. But is there anything that stops users from trying to rehypothecate through the B2X service? Oh, or yeah, we, we, like we don't send them the Bitcoin. Um, so it's like layaway, right? Yeah, like like we, we you you come to us with, you know, $1,000 worth of Bitcoin and you want to take out a B2X loan. We issue a loan of $1,000 okay. and we don't send that to you. What we do is we automatically purchase more Bitcoin on your behalf and that gets added to the collateral. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, that actually does help me because that, that makes more sense. It's basically just a leveraged buy of Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, we basically found that early on we had clients coming to us and we're posting, you know, 10,000 bucks worth of Bitcoin as collateral, taking out a $5,000 loan and a couple of days later coming back and depositing $5,000 worth of Bitcoin and then going out to take another loan. And we kind of said, you know, we can we can automate this process for you. And then you don't need to pay as much money on fees and, and, uh, and uh, you know, price slippage from sending to other um, uh, some other platform. Yeah. Cass, do you have any more questions about Ledin? We can move on to Blockstream now. This should be fun. I want to. I want to preface this by saying I'm. I'm on the show as an individual, <laughs> yes, and I worked course. on the customer support team at Blockstream. So, I, I am a shareholder still. I, I did claim my stock options. So there's that. <laughs> What's the point of Liquid? What's the point of Liquid? Um, yeah, I mean, Liquid is Liquid has a lot of points to it, and that it's it's part of this original idea of side chains, um, which is I'm going to give you the long answer. So the you had Bitcoin was invented. It was discovered you could reach decentralized consensus without a trusted authority. And um, so we had this one coin, Bitcoin, which had these specific parameters, right? And then um, it, people realized early on, hey, we could actually just like change these parameters and kind of have different coins that can provide different use cases. And, you know, so a simple version of that was Litecoin, which, you know, two and a half minute blocks, you know, tweak some of the numbers, but effectively does the same thing. And um, you know, a bunch of other coins got created with all these different parameters. And, you know, I think Monero is an interesting example. You have higher privacy, but like it scales even worse than Bitcoin, stuff like this. But there's this problem where each one of these coins need, needed, well, needed, oh, yeah, you kind of need, need a native token to do a proof of work um, a blockchain, which really skewed incentives. And I don't need to tell you guys uh, or your audience uh, what those skewed incentives are. You just did, well, oh, we can print money and... Um, and uh, the kind of the original idea with sidechains was, well, there probably is value in having these different um, uh, types of blockchains. You may want to work under different parameters, um, but how do we do this without, you know, these uh, really warped uh, incentives? And so sidechains is this idea where, well, you can create a separate blockchain, but instead of uh, having someone try to bootstrap a new economy and run into this question of who do we award the new assets to, uh, you could just connect it to an existing blockchain. Um, so people can move coins onto Liquid and uh, can use a different rule set for the blockchain, move them around, and then move them back to Bitcoin when they want. So yeah, I mean, the original idea for that was in a sidechain's white paper. Most of the authors of that white paper went on to found Blockstream to pursue uh, you know, sidechains, essentially. And we've had, um, so Liquid itself, you could use it for uh, a few different things. Like, so first of all, it's, um, the trust assumptions are a bit, um, it requires more trust. You're trusting a federation um, rather than uh, proof of work. So it is, like on a spectrum of totally custodial to uh, highly distributed like Bitcoin, it is more along the spectrum towards custodial. And uh, it has a cool thing called uh, confidential assets, confidential transactions. So they're higher privacy uh, guarantees uh, you can use with Liquid. Um, you can also issue other assets on top of them. Um, so Tether, for example, has, um, uh, has issued uh, coins on Liquid. So if you have use cases where you want to, you know, have a single transaction that allows for, uh, let's say atomic swaps between Bitcoin and um, and Tether, you can do that on Liquid by having you know different inputs and outputs of different assets on the same chain. Um, so yeah, there's a was that too low level description? 
generally the reasons I hear people recommend using Liquid are for mm. either issuing the tokens, issuing the new assets, which was mm. possible before Liquid using like OpReturn, like Omni Mastercoin sure. did, or it'll be for something like uh, rapid arbitrage, right? Because it can, it's much quicker confirmations than the main blockchain. You can move quickly between these different entities and stuff. And my struggle has always been that there's this native on-chain way to issue other assets using OpReturn already. And mm. for something like arbitrage, where you're moving between exchanges, it always seemed to make more sense to just use state channels in Lightning to make that arbitrage rather than first having to commit the Bitcoin to like this multi-signature wallet in this federation of groups. Sure. And so between those two things that already existed, I always struggled to understand where Liquid was supposed to fit or what it was supposed to uniquely bring to bear. Yeah. Um, so those are two, I think, valid use cases. Um, the opportune use case for Bitcoin, I think, is unsustainable in that Bitcoin has limited block space. It needs to have limited block space to ensure that nodes um, can, it's affordable to run a node and validate what's going on in the space. And in the future, the Bitcoin's block subsidy will disappear. We're going to need fees to rise in order to provide security. So in the long run, I don't think return style assets on top of Bitcoin are going to be economically viable. I think you're better off moving those to sidechains um, like Liquid. Uh, as for the uh, kind of custodian to custodian transfer, um, that type of thing, Lightning's great for smaller amounts, um, but it is liquidity constrained. Um, sending it to and from different uh, parties through channels, it requires you to have kind of a uh, viably liquid, oh, sorry, that's a tough word, like enough liquidity in channels between um, uh, both parties. Now, that's great if you're sending between two custodians that have are like running a dedicated, really kind of fat payment uh, channel between them. But that might always be might not always be the case um, because liquid operates as like a broadcast uh, like under a broadcast kind of transaction model, um, there are no liquidity constraints like there is with Liquid. So if you're sending kind of one Bitcoin, uh, one like LBTC from one participant to another, like as long as they have a, a Liquid wallet, you can send as much as you like and they can receive it. So yeah, I, I think that like for smaller payments, you're absolutely correct, Lightning preferable. Um, the larger you get and the more participants there are, the more you kind of run into these... Um, uh, these kind of routing uh, constraints and I think Liquid can provide a good... Um... Sure, but like, you know who the exchanges are. The exchanges can open the channels directly between themselves without even necessarily being connected to the rest of the Lightning channels more broadly, right? And so like, both Bitfinex and say Kraken can each put up adequate liquidity for the normal arbitrage between their exchanges in the state channel. And is that meaningfully more infrastructure work for them to do than running and maintaining a Liquid node to be able to do that integration? It depends how many participants you want to be able to quickly send between, right? Because if you have, like, let's say, three custodians, um, then sure, they make a big fat channel between each of them. No problem. Um, let's say you want to be able to quickly send between, um, you know, some smaller custodian and uh, one of the bigger ones. They might not have a direct channel with them. So it, that, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's a trade-off between, um, uh, between the, the, the kind of the number of participants that you want to be able to send between. Um, okay, so I have some different questions about Blockstream. Uh, they might be a little more obtuse. So these, these might be either harder or easier to answer, uh, depending sure. on how you want to look at them. But um, This is one of the hardest uh, conversations I've had <laughs> on a podcast, by the way. So good job, guys. That's unfortunate. <laughs> no, it's, um, um, but... it's... You're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> so I think... I don't know, a lot of people familiar with the space understand that there's a clear line of support between Blockstream and Bitfinex and Tether. And I think mm. that 
there's people who, for instance, are Bitcoin Cash supporters who see that kind of collaboration as uh, part of the block size war, which I, we haven't talked about on this podcast. It's a long story, um, and maybe we'll get into it one day. Can I just tell your audience, read the, read the book, The Block Size War. It does an excellent job of describing it. So besides the block size war, though, I think it's become obvious that people within Blockstream are big supporters of Tether. We talk about Tether a lot. We talk about stable coins a lot. Mm. And I think that support from a company that is simultaneously perceived as being very pro-Bitcoin maximalist not only comes across as a bit hypocritical, but also really, really weird. And I, I guess I'm wondering, how does Blockstream own that? Like, do you guys do you guys look at that and go like, yeah, we did affect the block size war. That is a part of our history. We're we're glad we affected it. We're open to that. Uh, do you do you look at your the support of Tether by Blockstream and and Bitfinex by Blockstream, and uh, and go like, yeah, we're glad we support these guys. They're intimate and important parts of the space. I guess I'm just wondering. How close are these ties and how much do people within Blockstream accept these perspectives as well? Okay, um, so I think there are very two two very separate questions there. It's, it's Blockstream's kind of relationship to the block size war and the amount of influence that it and its uh, kind of members had over what happened. And then there are the ties to Tether. I know they're not completely separate, but I have kind of very distinct uh, feelings on both of those. I will also say from the get-go that... Um, that uh, you guys know who Rusty Russell is, yeah? No? Oh, you guys are going to love Rusty. Um, so Rusty is the... Uh, Rusty Russell is actually one of the... It was a bigger name from the kind of Linux um, open source um, kind of contribution days. He's a bit of a legend in that in those circles from what I understand. And he leads the uh, Lightning development at Blockstream. And um, uh, he's also... Doesn't like towing the party line. He likes expressing his opinion regardless of uh, what... Uh, of how well that aligns with uh, Blockstream. Is this that picture uh, that you sent me? I don't know if I maybe maybe it was the one I sent you. Yeah, Rusty was making fun of uh, Blockstream's connection to Tether, even though Rusty is a very prominent yeah. uh, uh, individual at Blockstream. Um, so I bring that up to say that um, having worked at Blockstream, it's kind of funny to be being asked to describe what Blockstream's relationship to Tether is, because there are many many individuals at Blockstream with their own opinions on it. I would personally be more comfortable if Blockstream distanced itself a bit more from Tether. That is my personal opinion, and. Uh, I, I don't agree with the Tether truthers. I think the, 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 these theories about how Tether is like propped up the Bitcoin industry. Um, I think that those are wildly exaggerated. Um, I actually haven't looked into Tether um, to, in a tremendous amount of detail. I mean, like um, mainly because I just um, I think that if it were to go under, it would not really fundamentally change the reasons I'm really interested in Bitcoin. It would like be I mean, a significant event for the industry, but like. Um, yeah, I, um, I I guess it's something that um, uh, I'm preface. I'm saying that because like it's not something I usually like end up talking to people about. But um, here we are. I um, yeah. So I'm like yeah. I, I agree that there is there are contradictions there. I think that's a valid point to make. Um, and uh, yeah, I um, so I'm not going to try and uh, say much more about that on Tether. Um, regarding what happened with the block size wars, that's that's much trickier to answer. You know, Blockstream itself, like, you know, you have the situation where no individual can change what happens with the code and stuff, but you have different individuals, you know, even if it's a leaderless movement, different people are going to have to, um, going to have different, possess different levels of status and um, kind of influence. And so their opinions will hold more or less weight. 
Um, and you know, it is of course true that a lot of the um, uh, founders of Blockstream, prominent members, had voices that were listened to by a large number of people. Um, I don't know if it makes sense to translate that into like Blockstream, you know, really decided what happened with, um, you know, the with Segwit or, or the four cores there. Um, you know, I, I think it's totally reasonable to to say that um, you know the the individuals there and um, uh, you know did play a pretty key part. Um, I um, I joined shortly after um, all of that, but I you know I um, you know I, I feel like I did my small part. I was you know one of the organizers of a meetup in Seoul, and we kind of wrote some materials, and uh, it was a bit weird because we um, had a friendly relationship with Roger Ver before all that, and <laughs> didn't really afterwards. Um, uh, but like I'm kind of like I, I feel quite proud of my part. Like I think I you know changed a few minds and had some small influence on. Uh, what happened there. And, um, you know, if you scale it up, there are enough individuals and a lot of them are at Blockstream. Sure, it had an influence. Um, but I think that the, the, at the same time, I think people take that and they really run with it and then kind of exaggerate the degree to which that's true. And then it just turns into this oversimplified, you know, therefore Blockstream controls Bitcoin and they can just dictate what goes on. Um, yeah, that's my general impression on those two questions. Yeah, the, the version I hear is, oh, is it Visa or MasterCard? MasterCard invested in DCG, and then DCG invested oh, in Blockstream, and so therefore <laughs> MasterCard controls Bitcoin. I, I think that's that's the story you're trying to hide from us, right? Mario is how Mar I, uh, MasterCard controls Blockstream. You, know, you, want, you want to know the real story? Um, what's the, uh, the, you know, there's there's an actual, your, your followers going to love this. There's a real Bilderberg connection to Blockstream. Um, one of the, I forget who it is, but like one of the investors... <laughs> I think it was like through AXA oh, is yeah. like our investment. I'm sure. I'm sure the critics know all this already. Um, but like one, of, I think he was like one of the large investment. Um, he was like heading their investment schemes, and he had some role with Bilderberg, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. So it was one of these like two or three connections. So it's Bilderberg. It's not Visa or Mastercard. Um. <laughs> got got to make sure to clarify that. Uh, yeah, it's important for everyone to know. You have no idea what this can spur, but okay. Um. <laughs> oh, oh, I know, man. I like one of the things I like. I don't know. I, I say we. I miss the lizard beams, man. I miss. I still have my my lizard mask that I got when I joined the company. Um, I got it for myself. They didn't give it to me, but I I remember. Like so I mean, you say. I, I don't know. I. Well, to be honest, okay, this is my critique of Blockstream. Actually, I think that there were all these absurd theories out there, and a lot of the early founders, I think, just took them too seriously. And like, and I was just like, run with it, guys. Have fun with it. Make fun of these people. Um, to be honest, like I, you know, I don't agree with everything Samson did um, at his tenure at Blockstream, but I think ridiculing those types of theories was um, uh, a good move on his part. Um, and to the degree that Blockstream did more of that, I think it was good. Bring them on. <laughs> um, Bennett, do you have any more questions about Blockstream? Not directly about Blockstream, but a little bit about Bitcoin governance. Ooh, that's um, a fun one. Namely about Check Template Verify, which has been exposing some points of articulation in the Bitcoin governance process and the way people mm. expect that to progress. Do you have any thoughts on how that proposal has come forward and passed through the governance process so far? Man, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, I mean, okay, uh, like, all right, I'll give you very general high-level stuff, and then maybe you can be more specific. Um, I like covenants. I think that um, the functionality that um, uh, CTV enables is generally desirable functionality. It's probably safe as far as I can tell. 
Um, I am somewhat deferring to some more technically um, inclined people to me on that. I think there's good reason to suspect that um, there are potentially better ways of adding covenants to Bitcoin that haven't been adequately researched yet. It is for that reason I do not want CTV to be added yet. It is for that reason, as far as I understand, that there isn't technical consensus yet. So now, um, Jeremy Rubin, the guy, uh, uh, the kind of main, I guess, patron of uh, kind of coded up, up CTV and, and coded up the uh, speedy trial proposal for it. I, I, I don't I think he he skipped a step um, in writing that code and saying, hey, like, how about this for a timeline? I think there should have been more consensus building. I think perhaps um, I should have been a bit more patient waiting for um, kind of research on, uh, you know, Russell O'Connor, an interesting proposal a few months back at Rusty Russell has um, two separate people um, have has uh, put forth like a, a proposal for like an alternative way to do it. And I want to see that researched more before. Um, and so for those reasons, I, yeah, I think it was a bit early for speedy trial to be proposed. I don't think the people supporting it are like evil. I still like Jeremy. I, you know, hope he sticks around Bitcoin and continues to work on it. Um, and I think people are being mad online, you know, surprise. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm, I want to know, what do you think, Bennett? What do you think? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I don't have any particular technical opinions on check template verify. <laughs> It was just fascinating to see the types of reactions because there was a certain subset of maximalists who seemed to immediately reject it because it had come from outside of the normal proposal process and had come basically fully okay. formed with the code. I, I think that's kind of bullshit. Um, and I think that's some overzealous proponents of OpsyTV are pushing that narrative. There are also some people who... Some people. I actually like most of these people. I consider them friends. Like Paul Sports, for example, really wants drive chain in, and I think he exaggerates the degree to which there's like the, there's this kind of ivory tower because they don't support his proposal. And I've told Paul this, and I'm like, um, you know, and so for him and like a few others that really want OPC TV, people don't like the um, people have what I think are legitimate technical um, reasons to hold off on it just yet um and rather than acknowledging those it's easier to jump to oh well it didn't come for the right person like you know it's uh, i you know it's not as like, jeremy rubin isn't isn't this big outsider like i mean he's like he's also very much friends with um you know like a lot of the people who have rejected his proposal i mean it's it's not as though like this wasn't actually you know it was discussed on the mailing list for a very long time like i i don't um so no i don't buy that i think that people who are suggesting that the only reason this is being rejected or the primary reason is because it came from you know, a, like a, the wrong person. I, I think it's, it's quite silly. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just such a weird thing because it kind of suggests that Jeremy Rubin is some like pariah or, you know, it, it, like someone who like, you know, wasn't involved in the kind of core like circles before. Like, I mean, you know, it's been on the mailing list for ages. Um, there's been very clear uh, technical reasons for not wanting this, um, you know, and I think he jumped the gun a bit. But nah, I mean, like, I, yeah, I think I think those um, that that's a, a, an exaggeration. Push back. Come on, man. Argue with me. I, yes. Some of the maxi objections I saw to it did seem less to be about who it was from and more that, that he was pushing for speedy trial and that it hadn't gone through like the normal approval process before oh, that. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it takes Bitcoin a very long time to make any changes whatsoever, which is a strength of sorts, but mm -hmm. prematurosification can also lead to challenges in accommodating later things. 
Oh, I, I fully agree. Yeah. The people who are like ossification, I'm like, yeah, fuck that. Okay. And so Sorry, keep going. I guess it's just, there's still a bit of existing tension between like how quickly should Bitcoin make any changes and what changes should actually be on the table. Hmm. And even SegWit, which was adopted back during the block size wars, has seen moderate adoption. There's still a variety of large industry players who still aren't using it. I mean, it's I think it's still less than 50% of transactions are from SegWit addresses. Taproot was released into production a while ago with the soft fork. And I think that the number of Taproot transactions is still like single digit percentage. It's less, less than 1%. Less than 1%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, is Bitcoin nearly done changing? We're moving too slow. We're moving too slow. Is that? Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> is it more fully ossified than it seems? No, no, I don't think so. I, I think if, if it actually gets ossified, there's going to be chain split. I, uh, no. Um, I'm, I'm firmly in the way too early for, to even talk about ossification camp. Okay, so a couple comments on the, on the SegWit thing. I, um, so I would be careful with using like transactions as a metric just because like um, the nature of how transactions are broadcasted more and more now, like you have more batched payments. A SegWit is actually like an output level change. So if a, a transaction might have like, you know, eight outputs that are SegWit and like two that are non-SegWit or something, like is that SegWit or not, right? And um, when I look at like SegWit spending payments, it's up to like 85% now. Uh, the other thing is SegWit was already used to, um, like Taproot was added because of SegWit. Like um, the way it was added was through, was enabled by SegWit. Uh, so like already we've been able to add another change. Now you can argue Taproot's not being used much, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, but like SegWit was quite um, quite influential in like allowing us to more safely add upgrades in the future. Uh, the other thing is that we haven't reached a position yet in Bitcoin where blocks are consistently full. That's never happened for more than a few months. So the incentive to use space more efficiently isn't quite there yet. As soon as blocks are consistently full, any reduction in block weight in, in the amount of data that you're writing to the chain um, will save clients money. And that's going to really kick into like kick into gear the the kind of speed and, and like how much these companies prioritize you know uh like adding uh, you know changing to segwit address changes changing to taproot addresses um you know if like fees have been pretty low for most of the last few years so why would you bother investing resources into upgrading to new address types if it's going to save you essentially zero money so you know despite that segwit's at like 85 percent adoption at the output level yeah, and, and like, and even if it wasn't, I, I'm not sure how much that would change my view on it. Um, it. I mean, if blocks had been full for like three years, no one is using SegWit. I think that would be a very valid case that like people aren't really using these upgrades we're adding, and not much is changing. Yeah, sure, but I'm I'm not too worried about that. If we get if three years from now, we're having this conversation, and the stats haven't changed. I will um, I will be gradually coming over to your position. Okay, having said that. Um, the the trade-off you're bringing up between like being so careful as to getting left behind um, versus rushing things and breaking things is one of the really fundamental actually probably that is the fundamental thing we're talking about with uh, CTV versus this potential other upgrade and I was kind of worried about this and that like I'm not really aware of any other covenants um, kind of alternative implementations at present um, there was this kind of idea from a few months back I want to see that pursued but like I don't quite have technical chops to research that stuff yet. And, you know, it's open source research. So you can't just, like, make someone do it. It's no one's job in particular. So, again, I was quite relieved when a few weeks ago I could see there was actually progress being made there. Uh, because there, there is a danger that you get to it. Some, well, we don't know if we want to add this because we don't know if it's the best way to do it yet. And if research and alternatives languish, then you're right. We can end up in this kind of ossification type scenario through, like, over caution and 
kind of just uh, this kind of backlash to like any change whatsoever. Um, so it is an interesting question, but I, I think that like, honestly, in my opinion, within about two years or so, I think blocks are going to be really consistently full on Bitcoin. Um, and yeah, maybe three or four, whatever. But then once that happens, I think there's just going to be so much more incentive for kind of new upgrades to be used um, more quickly. And then, yeah, you'll probably see a turnaround of that stuff. So why do you expect that within two years, Bitcoin blocks will be full? Because like, as you mentioned, this is mm. fundamentally important for the long-term security yeah. of Bitcoin because the Coinbase continues to go down and eventually hit zero. Mm -hmm. And as you already mentioned, over the last several years, most of the times the blocks haven't been full. Mm -hmm. They'll be full briefly when the price is going wild and then they'll start to empty out again. Yeah. So what over the next couple of years will drive consistent enough demand for block space that the blocks will be consistently full? So thank you for asking. This is my favorite question. I guess I kind of led us here. Um, basically, you need to find a way to measure block weight usage, like how much unused space there is and how efficiently block space is being used. And um, I've been looking at that a bit more deeply in the last few weeks. I will hopefully have some uh, some research to publish soon, which will be my first uh, paper in the space. Woo. And um, congratulations! Yeah, I uh, well maybe I shouldn't celebrate just yet because I haven't done it, but um, I will soon, hopefully. Um, but yeah, ba like long long story short, like uh, relative to what I was saying before about using uh, outputs and payments as a metric rather than transactions. Um, if you look at the number of payments. Uh, payments being defined as non-change outputs, uh, payments being um, processed by the Bitcoin network, um, that has been steadily going up. And that's like a very long, consistent trend. And uh, it hasn't, it doesn't show up if you look at fees um, or if you look, just look at block weight because of the gradual adoption of things like SegWit and then the kind of uh, the, the gradual adoption of um, things like Taproot. I think that'll show up next. Um, you kind of just see fees fluctuating wild. Um, you know, you have people using, uh, you know, OP return for these uh, other assets on Bitcoin, but then you realize that because you, you're going to use like Tether or something, you don't really need all of the distributed properties of Bitcoin because it's a trusted issuer anyways. Then it kind of makes sense to move to something like Tron, for example, because, you know, whatever. Um, uh, so I think a lot of those kind of temporary cases move to other chains. And I think that you'll end up with... Um, yeah, I mean, just honestly, like, if someone wants to look at this, the if you go to transactionfee.info and look for the um, for the data on payments, like payments per day, uh, they kind of describe how they define it. Um, I think this is um, I think this is a meaningful metric. Uh, if someone looks at it and they think, well, I think you're just cherry picking something, Mario. Uh, keep an eye out on my Twitter account, and I'll, I'll have a more fleshed out version of this argument. Related to that, before we move on from this issue. Are there circumstances where in, say, a decade, if the block weight is still not full consistently, it would be time to start considering a Luke Dash Jr. or a Luke Dash Jr.-esque approach of starting to reduce the available block weight until the blocks are consistently full? Is the, is the idea there that that would drive uh, the cost of block space up so more fees get paid? Yeah, from reading his writings, it seems to be twofold. One, that it reduces mm. the cost to run a node, and two, that it would eventually help guarantee high enough fees for the limited block space that it would help with the security. Right. Okay, so I strongly disagree with Luke on this, on both points, for different reasons. First of all, I think that um, I don't think that node usage is really that constrained by resource consumption at the moment. It takes you a day or two to spin up a node right now. I'm very comfortable with where that is. Okay, so the key constraint there is like how quickly can you start up a node, download all the blocks in history, validate everything, and then now you're up to date with the network. Um, the bigger the blockchain gets, uh, Bitcoin's history, the more resources that takes. And that increases at a linear rate uh, because we have the block size limit. 
the cost of bandwidth and processing power increases at an exponential rate, increases at several percentage per year. So right now, they're increasing at roughly the same pace. So getting a, running a node is not easier year to year. But because improvements to uh, our like computer technology have been improving or con continue to improve at an exponential rate, uh, I'm confident that, um, you know, basically we would need like if, if kind of the world's economy kind of stagnates and suddenly um, computers are not getting cheaper at, uh, you know, a kind of fixed percentage rate, then, um, yeah, I think we start looking at block size decrease. But I think that, uh, yeah, Luke kind of exaggerates the degree to which um, that's a problem at the moment. As for reducing the block size to increase kind of demand for Bitcoin block space, I think this is, I'm, I'm really starting to believe this is the most like um, the most misguided, but like widely held opinion in the space. I really don't think it works like that. I think that sure, demand elasticity is going to be low in the short term. You can like cut the block size in half and fees are going to spike. But in the long term, I think that's going to, I think you're strong, more incentivizing people to seek substitute goods. Um, so, you know, it is a really, really difficult question. Um, and this is actually kind of the question that's made me try and do like that. I'm like really interested in personally um, at the moment. But um, we need a way better understanding of the elasticity of block space demand um, before we can confidently say whether increase or decrease in the block size will increase the amount of fees. Um, luckily, I, I don't think, uh, I think we have more than a decade. I think we've got probably at least two decades to figure this out, which is uh quite a long time. But uh, right now, I'm, I'm very much, when it comes to like the block size, I'm very much in don't fuck with it uh, mode. I, uh, uh, we're, we're within safe bounds for now. We have quite a bit of time to figure out what's going on with, um, with these. Um, uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. Well, this is a good segue to my next question. Have you heard of Nano? Never heard of it. Never heard of it. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds exciting. Very low fees. That's all you got to know. <laughs> really? For now, at least. Really? For now, at least. Is it secure? Fees. Does it matter when fees are this low? Uh, all of this that's going on with Terra and Luna, uh, the market at large plummeting, what, roughly 60%? I don't know what we're at today. Um, obviously, you've been here long enough. You've seen this before. But mm -hmm. I started my journey in 2017. So after you. But I, I've been through a bear market before. Do you see this as different to any of the other ones at all? Or do you just see it as another, well, maybe it'll be 84% off and then we'll just jump right back up to whatever we need to? Like, how do you perceive these? I mean, I hope you're not asking you to predict what the price is going to do. No. Um, I, uh... <laughs> no, no, I don't, no. I, I don't, I'm not talking about price. I, what I'm talking about is a difference in market structure and psychology, I guess. Okay, so... I take the piss out of my fellow maxis a lot, but this is one place where I'm very aligned with them in that I don't, my opinions on Bitcoin are very, not very affected by what goes on in the kind of crypto world. Like, of course, there are impacts. It's going to impact regulation and it's going to impact kind of the price in the short term and stuff. But when I, when the reason I'm interested in Bitcoin, it, it's irrelevant what happens with Luna. You know, I, I'm interested in, in, uh, you know, this type of asset that, uh, isn't controlled by any entity that can allow people to transact digitally without an intermediary. That's interesting to me. And what happens with Luna and UST doesn't change that. As far as I'm concerned, like I, I love, I like the bear markets. Honestly, like sure, it's not great for my net worth in the short term because I am quite heavily invested into Bitcoin. Um, but I like the bear markets in that it it often helps to kind of wash away a lot of nonsense. 
at least I kind of feel like it should. Um, sometimes I'm kind of like, why is all this stuff still going on? But uh, yeah, I mean, like I do find it encouraging when like, you know, like, you know, a friend of mine lost 500 bucks in Luna and I find that encouraging because you can afford to lose 500 bucks. It's not too much. But um, as a response, I, it seems as though he's going to be a lot more skeptical about the types of stuff he invests into. And so that stuff goes on. It, it kind of gives me hope. I, um, I, don't, I don't think this is fundamentally different um, than what we have seen before. Um, I'm sure in three or four years, there's going to be some new three-letter acronym that everyone's obsessing about. You know, it was ICOs and then it was... Um, then it was NFTs now, and I'm sure there's going to be another thing a few years from now. And hopefully over time, those will constitute a smaller and smaller portion of activity. But yeah, none of that has fundamentally changed by the last week. Awesome. Well, I, I do have one more question. Um, Mario, why are pre-philanthropic billionaires actually a good thing? <laughs> oh, okay. Pre- <laughs> I fucking love that term. came up with it myself. I am... Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the effective altruism kind of framework. And um, I mean, I, I don't know how much your audience this. knows about this, but I, I think I've seen both of you guys sort of take the piss out of this scene now and then on Twitter, or at least people, people who claim to ascribe to it, perhaps. Is that... I'm less broadly mad at the idea of effective altruism, mm. like trying to use okay. your money to do good in an efficient way is a worthwhile yeah. goal. You hate charity. The earn no. to give effective altruists. Give me a bit of a... That's where I tend to get yeah. a little bit of objections. Okay, I think it's good to be skeptical because, of course, someone could just use that as a cover. Be like, oh, actually, I'm not earning any of this money for myself. I'm just going to keep it forever. But don't worry. When I die, I'm going to give it away. Of course, there's going to be people who use that as a as just an excuse to feel good about themselves why they just want to get rich, right? I also don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to earn money as long as you're not harming other people. But, like, the... like. That gets harder and harder to justify with the more money that you have, right? Like I, I'm just I think like, out of out of suggest. Sorry, go ahead. Well, okay, okay, okay. Let, let me let, let me walk you through this. Okay, so I I, I got interested in the effective altruism movement and kind of the, the whole rationalist community and stuff around the same time I got interested in Bitcoin and I got way more involved in Bitcoin partly because um, of some key friendships I made um, through the meetup in Seoul and. And I just found it a bit more interesting how, like, um, just kind of the, the nitty-gritty details of it kind of just kind of captured me. And I sort of fell into the Bitcoin industry, right? And I don't think Bitcoin is the most important thing going on in the world, but I, there's an amount of inertia I'm in it. And my kind of fallback is I'm like, I don't actually, I don't want to own a yacht. I don't want to, like, you know, live in a giant mansion. That doesn't appeal to me. Um, I definitely live a more expensive lifestyle than most people on Earth live. Like, I'm not going to pretend I, I, like, live this, like, super frugal, like, lifestyle and give everything away. No, like, I mean, I, you know, I, my life still is, I think, proportionate to a lot of my peers, right? But I, I do intend to give a lot of my money away. And um, I look at the Bitcoin industry, and I think there's a decent chance that we kind of fail at our mission. And, like, you know, a few decades down the line, this thing doesn't work out. Uh, but it's quite profitable for me. And for me having a positive impact on the world is really important and that's like an important fallback is that well i'm still acquiring resources that i can use to fund projects that i think will improve other people's lives um and then added to this there's this long-termist view so like when i joined blockstream i had some disposable income and i started donating a percentage of my money to charity every month and i um was also very bullish on the bitcoin price and it seemed like it seemed pretty likely to me that if i wait and give that money away later I can A, give away a higher amount, and um, I can probably, uh, once I have a, a larger chunk of money, can um, maybe spend some more time to like find some place where it can do more good. Um, 
Now, I don't like I don't think I've ever actually talked about this on a podcast. Maybe I have. Um, and I kind of while I say this, I feel a bit weird saying it because I, I think a lot of people will hear that and will kind of think it's bullshit and that's okay. But the reason the reason I'm bringing this up is that I look at someone like Elon Musk and I think if I were in his possession, I'm not sure I would do a whole lot differently if I wanted to have a positive impact on kind of the world or like SBF and stuff, right? I think that there are ways that you could invest money and earn money that um, provide valid services and improve the quality of other people's lives. And then at the end of that, you can donate it and give it away to other causes. And I think it's important to do both as well, but I think it's actually a really valid approach. And what I, what I, um, I don't like, um, and, and maybe you guys don't do this, like, you know, I, I actually, yeah, I should say, I, I am not accusing you of doing this, but I feel a bit defensive about uh, criticisms that that very idea can't really be valid. And anyone who claims to be doing that is like almost certainly like can't actually be genuinely motivated. Um, yeah, so that, struggle, that's kind of, I, yeah. I, I do indeed struggle to believe most billionaires when they say that they're going to give away most of their money because I think that the reality is that they won't, that they won't until they're dead. Um, and I like, but that's fine. Know, they can do it when they're dead. What's wrong with that? Like, I mean, like, like, let's say, like, I mean, okay, that, I look at something that, like Tesla. The, the right? harm, and, hold on, hold on, yeah, hold on, yeah, hold on one ahead, second. Sorry. Ahead. The harm to acquire that, those billions of dollars that they're mm. inflicting on other people is the problem. That's the problem. Oh, is that if, there's if, no, there's if no, if they are pausing. getting rich at other people's expense, I agree with you. Who, who isn't when they're a billionaire, though? Come on, Mario. Who isn't when they're a billionaire? These right, people okay. have so you, built themselves okay. off the backs of other people. That's how they got billions of dollars. Right. Okay. So um, I, I think where we disagree is this idea that it's not possible to become a billionaire without like your net influence on the rest of the world being negative, right? In, in the acquisition of that, that billion or more dollars, right? Is that the idea? I guess I find, I find it hard to believe that you could accumulate, not, not mm -hmm. that you could hold and move through billions of dollars in your yeah, lifetime. Yeah, yeah. That seems like a very realistic thing to me. The fact that you are holding on to billions of dollars until you die mm. is actually a big issue to me. Because what that's doing mm. is holding on to assets for as long as you're alive until you're dead and then giving it away to help the world. That's a huge problem to me. Well, and, the okay, so and the only reason that a lot of these billionaires indeed do give any of their money away is for tax purposes. And there's nobody who's going to deny that. Oh, sure. Like, that's why they give it away. Uh, okay. I, yeah. Again, I, I think that if someone is like, like passing on almost all of their wealth to like their kids and they're basically donating just enough to offset kind of what they're getting taxed for, I, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. I think that, like, I mean, I think our fundamental disagreement comes down to whether or not it's, like, plausible for someone to earn a billion dollars uh, without basically exploiting other people. Um, and I, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Like, I mean, I, I would consider Bill Gates's influence on the world to be massively positive, um, even, uh, even before his philanthropic giving. Now, uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people are going to have big problems with that and will kind of point out kind of shitty things that happened with, like, Microsoft and... Um, and like kind of, uh, you know, monopolistic practices and stuff like that. Um, but I think that the net effect of like accelerating the kind of putting a computer in everyone's home had massively positive impact for humanity, right? So I consider, I look at someone like Bill Gates and I'm like, I think even if he hadn't given any of his money away, I don't necessarily think that his existence and acquisition of those billions was a negative thing. Um, I, I like, we're probably not going to settle this there, but like, at least we now... At least, at least maybe you guys know why, uh, why I'm not as... It, I, okay, and also, let me say, like, um, obviously this doesn't apply to billionaires in general. Like, 
there's a lot of them that <laughs> we are going to share opinions on, right? Um, but it does seem a bit weird to me that, like, you know, you have people who are mega wealthy and they don't kind of do shit with it. They kind of live these, like, super cush lifestyles and live these big homes and buy yachts. And they don't really seem to attract as much attention as to those who have their billion dollars and invest them into companies, which provides economic value, which I think is preferable to just spending it on like lavish lifestyles. And it seems like a lot of the, 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 the criticism is directed at the, uh, uh, the ones who, who the businessmen. Um, so I, I agree. I agree with that to a large extent, but there's, sorry, go ahead, Bennett. Yeah. Yeah. My struggle is still with like Brock Pierce promised to donate a billion dollars before he had a billion dollars and then when asked about that fact said i don't think about money when i need money i make a token i hope it doesn't sound like i'm defending brock pierce (laughs) no but like he's trying to put himself in that same ideological thrust is that's okay for me to do these things as long as i'm eventually able to use this money for good yeah fuck that i'm not defending that sure 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 but like even you cited sbf there and like yesterday he Hmm. said that luna and terra was a system that was transparently going to falter nonetheless he invested in it he sold that investment to others and he collected fees from listing it despite the entire time knowing that this was a system that he said was transparently going to falter right the only value for an unsustainable scheme is the belief that eventually it will be able to be sold to a person who doesn't recognize it as an unsustainable scheme and so that entire thing is this activity with harm that he is now claiming he was aware of the entire time and it's all part of his earn to give goal Mm. yeah i i have more mixed feelings about spf um I, I think it's a valid argument. I, I kind of, yeah, had kind of the Gateses and the, the Musks of the world in mind when I made that statement to you. Now, now SBF... Like, S- even Gates has promised to give a bunch and his net worth keeps going up. He's not even giving enough to stop his net worth from going up. Right. Okay. So if, if Gates dies and like all his money goes to his heirs or like most of it, I'm with you, right? So there's a bit of like Schrodinger's philanthropist here and that we don't really find out until they're dead and we see what happens. Now, if he spends, if he spends his like, like, I mean, I, it, it seems to me like the Gates Foundation is like a pretty, pretty good thing that's going on, right? Like, um, and if in the end, like the money doesn't get donated, um, then yeah, I'm with you. Um, so sure, like th- there's very much like, yeah, well, like we're not going to know until we see what happens in the end, right? Um, regarding, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, it's just a striking pattern because if you look at like the billionaires who made the giving pledge, the ones who promised to give away half or more of their wealth, for almost all of them, mm-hmm. their wealth has increased since they made that pledge. Not only have most of these people's, these billionaires' wealths increased over this period of time since signing this pledge, but the ones who, whose their, their wealth hasn't, like George Soros, for instance, well, they're ridiculed and mocked and really not spoken highly of for donating a majority of their cash. So, like, what is the incentive for... I think I think Soros should be praised for doing that, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. But, okay, well, okay, let me, let me put it this way. Like, I am not a billionaire and I am unlikely to ever become one. But I have the potential to make more money than the average person. And I, th- I spent a lot of time thinking about how to... How I, like, can best... Um, use that to improve lives for other people, right? And kind of the conclusion I've come to the last few years is actually for now, I'm, I'm best off actually trying to invest that money and um, earn more of it and then kind of focus on my career, uh, make sure that I'm, I'm in a career where I'm not doing people harm. I think it's really important to think about that. And then in the future, hopefully when I have more of it, think very hard about how to invest that in projects that 
are doing good and can hopefully earn more money and then in the twilight of my life donate a lot more of it directly maybe in between now and then i will come across some cause that needs a direct donation that i think is really urgent and i'll go there right and so that, that's kind of how i'm thinking about it now um when i look at like a lot of these other billionaires like not all of them again we agree a lot of them don't do this or are just bullshitting like kind of brock pierce seems to be one of those right um and with sbf i i feel I have mixed feelings on because I think that he does do a decent amount of harm with uh, some of the projects he provides cover for. At the same time, I'm kind of like, I, I don't really want to criticize him too much because if we didn't have him, I think we'd probably have someone worse. So that's, that's a different argument. Um, but like, okay, so when I think of someone in my position, like, do you think that I, like, um, what, do you, what do you guys think I should do? Like, uh, do you think that, that maybe that thinking applies to someone in my situation because I'm not at billionaire level where I'm probably exploiting people? Do you think maybe I'm actually uh, approaching this in the wrong way? Uh, it's all, like you know. Yeah. Do you do you donate to charity every year? Can I ask you that? I, do you, you donate still consistently? I, I used to until it occurred to me that I can probably donate more if I um, if I invest that money. Um, so I had like you know an automatic well, amount taken on my paycheck. Even if you think about it on a, a scale of like taxes wise, you you can donate a certain amount and still it benefits you monetarily, right? If you're making a bunch of money every year, whether it's through your salary or through selling Bitcoin or whatever, then you can take a portion of that to avoid capital gains by donating it to charity. Sure. I mean, um, so it seems like a W either way is that you would be donating some of this to some charity at some point. Yeah. Like, I mean, I didn't have any capital gains for the last like year or two, so I didn't donate any. But yeah, I'm with you there. OK, so but, I think uh, I think my I, major issue is is twofold. I one. Yeah, I don't like that. They're they're su suggesting that they're going to donate all of it before they die. They're signing some pledge, making this promise mm. that they're likely not going to keep in my mind. Their wealth is not going to go to zero before they die. They're billionaires. They're obsessed with money. Um, but two, it's that like I don't feel like I would need to accumulate billions of dollars before I would feel comfortable giving away a lot of that money to causes that I feel like are worthwhile. But I think most people mm. are like that. So when people are billionaires and they have more money than the rest of us and they're like, well, I'm not going to do that unless I'm forced to via government taxation, I feel pessimistic. My struggle with effective altruism and especially especially earn to give effective altruism where you're trying to project out of the future is related to my issue with a lot of utilitarianism as a moral philosophy, which is that doing it well depends on knowing a lot of things. So like in basic utilitarianism, you need to be able to assess all the possible benefits and all the possible harms of your action before you can really start to make a determination as to whether or not it's moral. For something like uh, effective altruism, especially earn to give, where you're delaying the giving until some future point, you're also trying to project the value of your assets and the cost to accomplish the things you want to accomplish at that time versus now. And so hmm. like for a lot of things I can imagine, like consider, for example, climate change, right? The earlier you start giving to something like that, the earlier the dollars start being made available to the people working on that, the sooner it can have a difference and the more overall benefit that dollar can end up having by reducing the total amount needed to accomplish the thing. And yeah. so I struggle whenever I look at earn to give effective altruism with figuring out a way to consistently predict both the like nominal value of your assets in terms of whatever the currency is and their ability to do good in the future versus the immediate and pressing harms that are occurring. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, like, so most of what you said there, I agree with, but I don't see those as 
reasons you shouldn't take utilitarian approach, I see those as factors you need to take into account when thinking about it, right? So yeah, there's kind of the low-hanging fruit issue. Do I expect that uh, my donations now are going to be worth more or in the future? That's like a really valid question. If someone's like a short-term, like, yeah, again, there's a big split in the EA community between like long-termists and short-termists. And I don't like begrudge a short-termist. I think that depending on what your assumptions are, that's a completely valid approach to take. Um, I, I will disagree that you have to take into account all of the possible consequences to make a decision. Like, of course, you're never going to have perfect information. You're never going to have perfect information on any decision you make. But you just need to think about these things and try to put, uh, you know, rough likelihoods on them and then make them come out that way. Now, I like, OK, right now, my hands are kind of tied anyways, because most of the wealth I have is in kind of uh, is in shares for companies that haven't, you know, haven't been issued yet on the market. Right. So I kind of have to hold it anyways. Um but as far as I can tell, I don't have any reason to suspect that my dollars will do more now than they will in the future. Um, there is a risk that, um, that, yeah, there is low-hanging fruit that is kind of disappearing. Um, but, like, one of the reasons I'm also, one of the reasons I got really convinced by the long-termist argument was that, like, when I, when I think about, like, 20 years from now, uh, you know, the donations I make, you know, if, like, if I, you know, Bitcoin at least doubles from here on out, I may be able to, you know, uh, make twice as donate twice as much money to some global health cause, right? And that might help a bunch of people who aren't alive yet. And um, but it also might drop to half the price, and then you'll help half the people. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, but I think that there is human bias in like thinking about kind of the lives of people that don't exist yet. Um, are like that's really unintuitive. That's kind of that 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 seems really weird. I say that to people, and they give you like weird looks. Like, why would you like? withhold helping people now in exchange for people in the future that don't exist yet. And so I, as I strongly suspect that there's a real bias towards um, immediate uh, immediate donations. And I, that, that's, that, that doesn't mean that I think that immediate donations are bad. I think it's really good and really important that a lot of people are donating money now. But I think that because there is going to be human bias towards doing that, there's probably more value in um, being part of the smaller number of people that are going to do it in the future. That's, that's the way I kind of look at it. The thing is, if you guys are correct about um, the, the kind of uh, pre-philanthropic pre approach, the kind of long-termist earning to give model is wrong, I like, I'm trying to think how, the reason I'm really interested in this question is because I want to know what I should do with, like, with my life and kind of how to kind of select my career and donate going forward. And I didn't, like, I, I was never, like, I'm not really worried about the billionaires. I don't think they need to be defended. I, like, they're, they're fine. They have plenty of resources with which to live comfortable lives. They're okay. They don't need me coming on podcasts and, like, playing protector for them. The reason I'm interested in this is I want to know, like, how should I change my behavior? If what, if, if, um, and if I, you know, and I, I guess I've found that, like, the conclusions I've come to, um, in my own way, like reading kind of effective altruism material and long-termism um, has kind of, I guess it's helped me understand why at least some of them have behaved the way they do and make me think of them as less evil. Um, and that, no, no, that's how I arrived to it. So um, yeah. And by the way, look, I mean, I like my views on this have evolved in the last five years and I'm sure they will evolve in the coming five years. And if you guys or anyone listening um, thinks that I'm making a very obvious flaw, please tell me, like, I, I would like to know. The simplest counter to this is simply the um, the classic old man who, you know, plants a tree, right? The idea being that he's never going to see the tree fully grown. Mm. He knows he's going to die before the tree ever gets fully grown. But if he doesn't plant it today, the tree 
like never has an opportunity to actually start, get rooted, and yeah, grow it's, into... Yeah, it's the a, assumption that dollars are going to do more now in the future. That's... Which is seems to be, as far as I can tell from Bitcoin maximalists, a pretty safe assumption, right? That like my ability to fund building a bridge in, I don't know, whatever, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, doing that today, right now, is going to cost me significantly less mm -hmm. than it will cost me in 20 years. And like we can talk about inflation and we can talk about all the reasons that that is the case. But like donating to try to build that thing now is always going, in my humble opinion, always a more effective mechanism to try to get something done. Because if I if I wait 20 years, who knows? Who knows what's what my what my actual income is going to be like in 20 years? Maybe we all get canceled tomorrow. You never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen to the assets that you're invested in. Um, the entire market is dumping. It's not like it's uh, just cryptocurrency. It's stocks. It's commodities. Mm. You know, people invested in silver and gold. Like you never know what your assets are going to do. If what you want to genuinely do is do good and you want to donate to a charity that you trust and have done a significant amount of research on or want to start your own 501c3. Like, I think those are all great, but waiting 20 years genuinely, I, I, I genuinely feel does not help anybody right now. That's how I feel. Well, it certainly doesn't help anyone right now. I'm with you there. Um, but you never know if anyone's around in the future, so. It's true, it's true. There, there is uncertainty there, and I guess I, the degree to which we weight that uncertainty is a big crux between our positions, yeah. Yeah, I think it's entirely possible to construct a totally valid argument form supporting both effective altruism and earn to give effective altruism. My biggest issue with it is basically the embedded path dependence, basically the assumptions you're making about how these problems are going to progress, how your own situation is going to progress, and how your views on these things are going to progress over time. And then juxtaposing that it doesn't feel like a particularly moral act for, say, an oil baron to strip the earth, make a ton of money, cause these harms, live a relatively extravagant life that still leaves a ton of money behind. And then once they're dead, they no longer have to feel any pain or issues or anything from the money being gone to give it at that point. It, it kind of feels like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too, you know, like that you get to do all the things while you're alive. You've got a justification for any kind of questionable or borderline things you did. And then the potential pain of having to give, of having to have less, of to sacrifice these things is not something you are taking on. That's not to say that the good, the good that is still, the good still occurs. The money is still given, people still benefit, but it feels a little bit like a way for someone to try to like get all the benefits of being a philanthropist without having it can to easily, it. it can easily be used as a cop out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, and like I said, I'll iterate this. I don't think this should ever be used as a, like as a justification for doing things that would otherwise be immoral. Like, I think that, like, earning money in a way that harms other people with the justification of I'll donate it to later, that I'm, I'm not okay with. And I, I don't consider that justified. Cool. I think that's all. Um, well, this is one of our longest, ep <laughs> longest episodes ever. Thank you, Mario. Thank you, Mario.